thank you, Clara and Mark, for that great number. Holy, holy, holy. As a young boy, I grew up understanding that I had responsibilities around the farm. Most farm kids do grow up that way. Whether it be flopping the hogs or feeding the cows or milking them, or if it be shoveling some grain or sweeping the house, kids need to know that there are jobs to do around home. I recall as a young boy, my mother giving me an assignment of doing some sweeping with a broom. Now she had to show me that there is a way to sweep that works, and then there's a way that doesn't work. There's a way to sweep that raises some dust, and then there's a way to sweep that gets the place clean. And it illustrated to me something that she often said, and that is that there is a right way and a wrong way to get a job done. She also said, if there's a job worth doing, it's worth doing... Ah, your parents said the same thing. I want you to know this morning that our Heavenly Father has a work for us to do on earth. It is exciting that He does. It is satisfying that He does, because it gives this earthly life purpose and direction to know that God has a reason for our being here. This work that God gives us provides an overarching sense of meaning in our years in the world. How then do we do heaven's work on earth? I invite you to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 4, for our text is verses 2, 3, and 4, and we'll get some insight into how to do heaven's work on earth. The Apostle says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So the first question I want to ask as we look at this text this morning is, what is heaven's work? What is God's work that he has given us to do? Now in the broader context of of this text and of that question, we can say that whatever we do is God's work for us. Look back in verse 17 of chapter 3. He says, and whatever, or literally he says, and everything, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do is heaven's work. And it's to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, it's to be done recognizing that he has delegated to you the opportunity to be his representative there. Do it in his name. You are his ambassador to that situation, to that place. You're his diplomat in your circle of influence. And so whether it be in your neighborhood or your workplace, in your home, wherever you are, you are the Lord's diplomat. 
And so whatever you do, do it in his name as his ambassador. But then again, he uses the same phrase in verse 23 when he says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And so again, he says, whatever you're doing, it's heaven's work. And therefore, it should be done for the Lord. You know what this does? It makes everything sacred. If you work on an assembly line where things are being punched out in metal, that is sacred work for you as a Christian. Because you're doing that for the Lord. If you're typing letters on a computer or entering data on a computer, that's sacred work. Because whatever you do, you're doing it for the Lord, not for men. But in the specific text we're looking at, we find the heart and the core of what heaven's work is. It seems to me that the apostle shares that with us as he talks about his own responsibility, and he says it is to speak forth the mystery of Christ. In the broadest sense, whatever we do is heaven's work because God has given that to us as an assignment to be his representative, and we do it as unto the Lord. But in the narrowest sense, in the, in the heart sense, in the focus of it all, we can say that God's work on earth is advancing the knowledge of Jesus to everybody. Paul puts it, speaking forth the mystery of Christ. That is, what God has done for us in Christ. That God has brought redemption for us through the work of his cross. That is the mystery of Christ that you and I are to speak forth. And so we should see every circumstance of life, including our limitations, as opportunities to do this work of God. The apostle was in prison. Remember? He wrote the book of Colossians while he was under house arrest in the city of Rome, and he refers to that by saying, for which I have also been imprisoned. Now there is a parallel text to Colossians 4, and that is found in Ephesians 6. Look back there for just a moment. In verse 19 he says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. You notice the similar words? For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The apostle saw his current circumstances as an assignment. He calls himself an ambassador who is in chains. And maybe you see yourself today in chains of some sort. Chains physically that limit you so that you cannot do what you would like to do. Or chains financially. Or chains emotionally. Whatever your chains may be, whatever your limitations may be today, see those chains 
even that limitation as an opportunity. Heaven's work on earth is to make Jesus known to others. How many of you received the grace link in the mail this week that talked about the survey? Yeah, most of you. When we don't send it out first class, we're rather dependent upon when the post office wants to get it there. And they usually do a pretty good job. It was sobering to me that only 36% of our congregation desires to see our church grow numerically. Does that bother you? That disturbs me greatly. Now I realize some may have answered that question with nuances in their minds that weren't on the page. But you know what that really says when you dig down underneath the question? It says, I like our church the way it is. I don't want new people coming in and disturbing it. Or it says, I'm saved. I don't care if other people get saved or not. Or can say other things. Folks, somehow, some of us have lost sight of what heaven's work is. Heaven's work is not that we be comfortable in our church. Heaven's work is that we tell others about Jesus. And if we tell others about Jesus, we ought to expect, ought we not, that some of them are going to be saved? And as a part of that, be baptized and become a part of our church? How then can we say we don't want to grow numerically? There's some fundamental thing missing in the equation here. Heaven's work is that others be saved and brought into the kingdom of God. And so what may seem like a very natural thing for the preacher to say on a Sunday morning ought to be rather shocking to some of us. That what God really wants from us, whatever our vocation, what God really wants from us is to tell others about Jesus. And whether we're farmers or fishermen, whether we are missionaries or marketing executives, whether we are Sunday school teachers or surgeons or pastors or policemen or farmers or freight haulers, whatever we are, God's work for us is to tell others about Jesus. Even when we're in chains of some sort. That's heaven's work. But my real question this morning goes beyond what is heaven's work. It is how do we do heaven's work on earth? And the answer to that ought to be very clear from our text. It is that we do it with prayer. The Apostle says, devote yourselves to prayer. We live in a generation that finds it much more easy to, to be devoted to oneself than to devote oneself to prayer. 
To devote oneself to prayer is sacrificial. This idea of devoting oneself is used ten times in the New Testament, frequently with respect to prayer. In Acts 1.14, Acts 2.42, Acts 6, verse 4, Romans 12, verse 12. This word devote is used in reference to prayer. The word devote comes from a root word that means to be strong. And so it means to be strong in prayer or to be faithful in prayer, to be steadfast in prayer. And as he tells us how to do heaven's work, he gives us some insight into prayer. At least four of them. The first is that prayer requires discipline. Notice that he says, and I'm going back to our text now, if I can get my Bible open to that spot, in Colossians 4, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. This idea of keeping alert means staying awake, and maybe the apostle has in mind what is recorded in Matthew as well as in Mark, that the disciples were asleep with Jesus when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he had said, go apart and pray, they fell asleep. And so he says to all of us, don't get sleepy in prayer. Don't allow prayer to become stale and mechanical and dull. Don't let your prayers become uninspired. But keep your hearts diligent and on guard and be alert in prayer. Ian Bounds writes, Desire is not merely a simple wish. He's talking about desire in prayer. Desire is not merely a simple wish. It is a deep craving, an intense longing, an absolute essential in prayer. He says, perfunctory formal praying with no heart and no feeling and no real desire is to be shunned like a pestilence. That is a pestilence that too easily comes upon us, isn't it? To go through the motions of praying without praying. And so he says, devote yourselves to prayer. And remember that prayer requires discipline. Not only are we to stay awake, but we're to give thanks several times in this whole text, starting back in chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, be thankful. With thanksgiving, be thankful. And prayers to be offered up that way. Too easily our prayers are caught up in the asking, aren't they, without thanking God for his answers. And so we're to discipline ourselves. Secondly, he tells us that prayer builds team. Notice he says, in verse 3, praying at the same time for us. That phrase, at the same time, means praying in close association with us. Prayer builds team. The apostle here is calling upon the Colossians to join his prayer team. It is good for you and me to remember we're not doing God's work alone. We're not sharing Jesus with others alone. We're part of a big team. 
It is a worldwide operation. It spans the generations. It's a big thing. And as we undertake this work and our part in it, there needs to be prayer support. All of us need teams. Some of you are at that point in life when you're making big decisions. You're in college, just starting a career, looking to be married. Decisions that will influence the rest of your life. I want to urge you, in particular, to build around yourselves a team of two or three or five people who will pray for you in these crucial years. I thank God for those who came around me, not at my request, actually, but out of God's goodness, who came around me in my formation years and said, I'm going to pray for you. Pray for you every day. I've told you about one or two of those people. I believe they made a difference in my life. Let me encourage you to build around yourself people who will pray for you. Prayer builds teams. And then you be a team member for somebody else or some several others. And be a part of their prayer team. And then we network together. There's strength in that. The third insight I get about prayer is that prayer opens doors. He says, pray this, that God may open up to us a door for the word that is for the message so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. He's looking here for a door of opportunity. Where do you put a door? In a wall, right? And so the apostle is suggesting that there are walls before him. There are hindrances before him. He says, pray that God will put a door there. Have you ever heard of Windy Bagwell and the Sunlighters? It's a southern gospel group. I, I suppose they're still going out there somewhere in these all-night things. Windy Bagwell was well-named. He got his nickname, I assume Wendy is a nickname, because he was a great storyteller. He told one of the funniest stories I've ever heard in my life. I wish I had the whole script and could share it with you this morning, but the story basically is about a time when he and the Sunlighters, his music team, were in a southern Kentucky church. And it was a small one-room structure with a light bulb hanging down, bare light bulb hanging down. And they had trouble getting their amps hooked up, and they finally did, got their amplifiers in place, and they got into the service, and everybody kind of got happy. It was one of those churches. And as people got happy, they began to kind of dance and jump around, and some of them went around behind them where they were playing. And pretty soon they came out bringing rattlesnakes. It was a snake handling church, and they didn't even know it. And their eyes got big as they're singing and playing their guitars, and they watched these people carrying rattlesnakes around, kissing them. And uh, he backed up to his wife, and she says, Honey, what are we going to do? And Wendy says, I don't know. He leaned over to her and said, Where's the door? 
And she said, I don't see one. He said, pray tell, where do they want one? <laughs> where do they want one? <laughs> oh, that's just one line now of the story. But here's the point. There was a wall there. He needed the door. Paul's saying, there's walls all around me. I need doors. Pray that God will open doors. Where do you need doors? Doors of opportunity. What are the walls up in your witness where you want to share Christ and it doesn't seem like there's any opening? Prayer opens doors. And then finally, prayer emboldens us. The apostle says, in order that I may make it clear, that is, that I may uncover it, that I may make visible, make known the gospel in the way that I ought to speak, the way that I must speak. And we'll not take time to look at it again, but in Ephesians 6 and what I read to you, he says that I may speak it boldly. The apostle is suggesting here that prayer emboldens us. And if you go back to the book of Acts, you find that prayer was that which gave boldness and freedom of speech to the early church. Prayer provided for them an, a courage and a confidence in the work of God. It, it took away the fear of those who were persecuting them. And so the apostle is saying here, prayer emboldens us. Someone has said, Satan laughs at our toiling, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. How then are we to do God's work by prayer? We're going to devote our summer to prayer around this place for a number of reasons. We're going to be looking in Sunday mornings at one of the most significant prayers of the Old Testament, in my opinion, in the book of Jeremiah. On Sunday evenings, we are going to have prayer meetings every Sunday night if there's not something like the Billy Graham crusade going on. Because we need prayer in our church like we've never needed it before. And the 36% that I just talked about is one indication of that. We need God to do something in our hearts, folks, so that we will understand the work of God and get it done on earth, because it's done with prayer. Prayer is the heart and the soul of getting God's work done on earth. Paul begins this book with prayer, chapter 1. He tells us how he prays, what he prays for, and now he ends it with a plea for prayer. God's work is speaking forth the mystery of Christ. That requires boldness, it requires opportunities, it requires teamwork, and prayer is the secret to all of that. Prayer is the way to do heaven's work on earth. Ian Bounds also said, he who does not pray robs himself of God's help. And so today I lay before you this text and this challenge from God's Word. God has a work for you and for me to do. It is telling others about Jesus. And the way to get that work done is through prayer. 
And now let's bow together. Lord, I pray that you will create in our hearts a deep desire to pray. Deliver us from the dullness, the sleepiness that has overtaken too many regarding this important, important truth. And I pray that as a result of your awakening our hearts to prayer, your work will get done in our lives and through us in our world. As we come to this table this morning, Lord, help us to remember that our Savior, before he went to the cross and shed his blood and offered up his body, spent a night in prayer. And through that prayer, was strengthened in his humanness that he might lay his life down on our behalf. And so as we partake of this cup and this bread, may we this morning give ourselves wholeheartedly to him and the glorious privileged work of sharing the truth of the gospel with others. I'm going to ask those who are serving with me to come. Father, as we prepare our hearts now, we want to confess our sins. And for some of us, the first thing on the list needs to be prayerlessness. For some of us, it needs to be forgetting what our work here is. Whatever our sins, we thank you that through the Lord Jesus you've provided a propitiation. And as we partake of this bread, we're mindful that our Lord, by his sacrifice, became the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Lift our eyes on the world that needs Jesus. Help us to remember the lost as we comfortably eat the bread this morning. In Jesus' name.